My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe that the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe that the best way, no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Hello everybody, welcome to the Fee-for-Service Podcast. Dr. Sonny Spira still sitting in for Dr. Drew Burns. And it looks like it'll be for a while. And that's our plan today. I'm really excited. Uh, this is a, I'm going to call him a friend of mine, whether he wants to say so or not. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I've gotten to know Dr. Kalra, hopefully I pronounced that right, Roshan, <laughs> from some Facebook so- sites. He's involved with the uh, real estate investment for dentists with Dr. Nathan Ho on Facebook. Great guy, young guy, full of energy, full of life. Super interesting story. Uh, I can't wait for everybody to hear it and learn. Um, this old dog is learning a whole bunch of new tricks. So I've really appreciated listening to him and getting to know him. So let me give you some background. Okay. He is a graduate, undergraduate of University of Florida. So he's a gator. That's so right. You're going to have to forgive him for that. It's not really his fault. <laughs> Not everybody could get into Syracuse. You know, Florida is a fallback school. That's all right. I know, I know you, people can't see it, but you're wearing gator orange right now. That's Syracuse orange, baby. Oh, oh I didn't see that. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, you guys have the same colors. That's good. And, and uh, so he graduated in 2013, so less than 10 years ago. And he graduated dental school from the Nova Southeastern University in 2017. In 2017, he started up from scratch, mind you, in 2017 from scratch, that's not a mistake, in Oklahoma City. And he has plans. He wants to retire within 10 years of when he graduated, and he's well on his way, and he's going to talk to us about real estate investing, and he's going to talk to us about uh, starting up from scratch, and and we'll leave the Florida stuff out of the, uh, the equation. But welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on here. I'm honored. Uh, you're oh, my pleasure. I can't wait. Uh, I got the chance to see Dr. Dr. Rashan speaking just recently last weekend at the Dental Win-Win Summit that Nathan hosts. And he spoke for an hour and he could have, he could have spoke entire day on this. And he talked about real estate investing and it was fascinating. So I don't know if you listeners have a slight interest no interest big interest i think this is an absolute resource that we should all at least be somewhat fluid in conversation on so i I can't wait but i'm going to first talk to you how did you get into dentistry let's talk about that what was your path to dentistry for sure and before if you don't mind i'm just going to say even if you aren't interested in real estate the, the purpose of investing in real estate is not to own real estate. It's to achieve freedom with your life. So even if you're not interested in real estate, 
it can be a valuable vehicle to achieving other goals, whether it be dentistry or life goals. So I think, I think um, if you're not interested in it, it's totally understandable. A lot of people aren't, but it can be a, a huge beneficial part of your life. So it's a tremendous investment, right? So just like, you know, you have stocks, you have, you have a different, hopefully a different portfolio of things. This could be one thing that you start to take advantage of, of the uh, ability to create some passive income, et cetera. So, but I'm yeah, not going to step on his toes. So absolutely. So how, how I got interested in dentistry, actually, my dad's a dentist. So much like uh, I met your son, Marcus, uh, yeah. at the uh, event. Uh, so my dad's a dentist. Um, and, uh, originally just like, you know, most kids, I didn't want to follow my parents' footsteps. So mm -hmm. I was thinking I wanted to be, you know, a medical doctor. Actually, I was told that anesthesiologists are the laziest of medical doctors because they just read books while they're, while their patients are <laughs> under. And of course that's not true, but that's what <laughs> I was told. So that originally that was my goal. Sure. Um, and then, and then I realized I didn't want to be in school for that long. Um, and so I was looking at different career options. And with a, with a more level head as, as I aged, I realized that uh, dentistry provides a great life for, uh, it provided a great life for my parents and, and by them having a great life, they provided a great life for me. And so I wanted to be able to achieve the similar thing for, for me and uh, my future family. Where's your dad practice? Almost fee-for-service practice in Tampa, Florida. Um, he actually was fee-for-service for almost uh, 20 years, and then uh, my brother joined and convinced him to accept at least one insurance. Um, uh, you young kids, man, we got you, you guys got to get in, got to get with the program. Why? I know it works. It's working. Just learn it. But hey, Tampa, that's where I was born. I love that part of the country. So, oh, okay, awesome. cool. Yeah. So are, like are they still are they still practicing? Yes, they do still practice, and my dad is. Uh, I would say very opposite of me because while I'm trying to exit clinical dentistry, not exit dentistry completely, but clinical dentistry for profit, my dad is, I think he's going to be that guy who's like 85 years old and still is going to be practicing and loving every minute of it. And you know what? That's the beauty of it. I, I, I've always said, if you stay current, like if you stay up on it and, and why not? You're passionate about it. Had a long talk with Dr. Abernathy yesterday, Mike Abernathy. And that's one of the things we spoke about, which was fascinating. So, so you go into, now when you started dental school, were you thinking, I'm going to do this for a period of time? Or were you thinking like your father, hey, I'm going to be a lifer? Uh, no, I thought it was going to be a full lifelong career. I, I didn't start thinking about real estate until my last year of dental school. And I didn't seriously start reading into it until like the last six months. So uh, most, most of the knowledge is, is relatively new knowledge um, that I've acquired, not new knowledge in the space, but new knowledge for me. Yeah. It's not something that I've, I've grew up in. My, my parents don't really do real estate. Uh, in fact, when I first started investing, they, they cautioned me against it. Um, so it's not something I grew up in. It's just something that I realized when I was getting out of dental school that I wanted to take care of my finances. And as I was learning about the different vehicles of financial freedom, um, the one that was the quickest and generates the most millionaires in any other business in the world or in the country is real estate. So I was like, this is the way to do it. Yeah. Most billionaires, right? With a B. Mm-hmm. 
you know, what's, what's, what's really interesting though. So I was, that kind of caught my next question, which was going to be, did you get any of that from your folks? Did you get that from any family members? Was there anybody that was really close to you that you could say, Hey, uncle, uncle Sonny, are you into, you know, tell me about some of your investments, like anything like that, or any people that you had that you, you could uh, reach out to. You know, you were talking to me about having an Italian family recently, and um, I, I would say that uh, a lot of immigrant families have this kind of where we have family friends, but they're not family friends. They are family. Yeah. And so while I don't have any blood relatives that I could talk to, I had plenty of mentors that were people I grew up with, and I grew up with their kids that I could talk to, and I learned a lot. And that, that helped start a foundation for sure. So there were people in the community that I, I talked to. I actually interviewed them. I was like, I asked them, hey, what can I do to earn a couple hours of your time, an hour or two hours of your time? Most of them were just like, no, just come over. And then I would have a list of questions I would ask them about real estate. The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. So like, like the Italian family, right? Everybody, oh, this is uncle pet. Is he really, no, I'm not really an uncle, but you know, we, we put a pool together or we, we built a shed yeah. out there for the neighbor. Yeah. I, I have a very large family like that too. Exactly. And we do the same thing. We call them, we call them uncle and we call them aunt, you know, we do yeah. exactly the same thing. I love it. It's great. It's great. So, so you do have a little bit, you at least have some people that you talk to. So talk about when did that, uh, I, I'm going to get right into that because I, but I do want to talk about the startup, but when did that really, when did that switch go off and say, Hey, this is going to be my passion. Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, to be, I don't know, to be frank, I don't even still think it's my passion. Okay. I think it's more of a, a means to win. My passion, true passion is being able to have that financial freedom to do whatever it is that I want. And so because real estate is the easiest and I won't say guaranteed, but the most guaranteed way to achieve it, at least for me, yeah. um, that's where I grew that interest in real estate. But real estate can be really difficult at times. You know, There can be a lot of challenges with it. There's a lot of great things that we're talking about, but there can be also a lot of challenges with it. And, and I would be lying if I told you it was always great. It's not always great, you know? So I don't know if the passion is necessarily for real estate more so as it is for the means or, or the ends that it's providing. Okay. So let's, let's skip over to, let's skip backwards. So you graduate. So you went to university of Florida, Nova South, South Southeastern university. You're a Florida guy. Yep. You got a dad practices in Tampa brother in, and, and you choose to start a practice in Oklahoma City. Talk about that. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, most of my friends were making fun of me because, you know, from <laughs> Florida, we don't know what's in Oklahoma. You know, we think it's, you know, just dust and, and uh, you know, hay and, you know, all those things that you get the, the stereotypes and it's not at all like that. Yeah, the um, tumbleweeds. And the tumbleweeds. Yeah, that's what was escaping my, my words. But yeah, uh, the tumbleweeds. And so that's what we thought it was. So I, I got a lot of flack from it for my friends. But what happened was I had my current dental partner. He was um, at the ASDA vendor fair. 
And uh, he the, the what was it? What was it the called? The ASDA Vendor Fair. The okay, yep, American Student Dental Association. Yeah, yep. yep, the American Student Dental Association, their vendor fair. And he was part of the um, tabling for Comfort Dental, which is a franchise. There's, I think, uh, 130 or so offices. Um, their, their model is more of a um, target the people who need dentistry the most because that's where you're going to find a lot of bread and butter. It's, it's a very strong bread and butter, good dentistry, affordable and accessible dentistry. Um, so that's their model. He, he, him and I clicked off really well. Um, and he told me, Hey, come visit me in Oklahoma. And so when he started telling me his numbers, his finances, like what he was bringing home, I was like, uh, you know, at, in dental school, when you're, when you're graduating, at least for me, I thought 120 was the standard. If you're good, 150 was the standard. And he's telling me multiples of that. And so I'm thinking, you know, I, it's a shame to say this, but I'm thinking, okay, is he doing something unethical? Is he doing something where like, I don't necessarily think I could do the same. So when he told me to shadow, I was like, okay, I will. And I think I may have surprised him because I shadowed him for a full week. And um, I was there from the moment the doors opened till after the doors closed, uh, just watching, learning, trying to absorb the entire process as much as I could. And I realized, no, he's, he's just, he's doing a lot of dentistry. That's what it is. He's doing a lot of dentistry, affordable and helping out a lot of people. And that's the model and it works and you, you can make a lot of money off of it. Were you doing any math in your head while you were following him around? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that's when um, you don't really realize this until you're a practice owner. I feel like that uh, things like extractions, a lot of people are trying to be cosmetic dentists and maybe don't touch extractions so much. But an extraction is a virtually no overhead procedure, you know. And so when you get whatever money you get from it, that you're paying very little in overhead as opposed to a crown or a filling or you know, and extractions don't take very long either. So uh, assistant chair side time is not very long either. And or, or in many cases, we do full mouth extractions and, and dentures or full mouth extractions and over dentures. And in a couple hours, you can talk about thousands of dollars um, and it's affordable. Mm -hmm. So you went in, so your startup was, it was, would you call it a corporate then? Or is it, because it sounds like it's, so I would say it's different from a corporate for a couple of reasons. There's a corporate is more a, you earn a percentage of what you produce or collect. Uh -huh. Whereas this is more like a private practice where I earn what I collect. It's a different, little different model in that you have, you pool your collections to pay overhead. And then what is remaining is split up by your percentage of collections. So it is a equal, not equal in terms of um, each person gets equal amounts, but it is equal in terms of what you put in is what you get out. So what you collect is what you return in income. So you um, went in, you went in with, with a partner. So the two of you started this together, or did you go right. in with this guy that was, that you shadow? Uh, yeah, the, the guy that I shadow became my partner. And so we, we were 50, 50. Now was, other, was, was he already established as a comfort dental office? Yes, he had an established office and then he joined up with me to open up one, um, open up a new one. So we, we had me as an inexperienced dentist and him as a more experienced dentist 
acting in that mentorship role. And together we built up this practice. Um, and another way that this is different than a corporate structure, even many corporates that allow ownership is that 100% of this office is owned by the dentist working in the office. And you're not really allowed to own multiple offices. So there's never any pyramid scheme kind of deal going on where one dentist owns 20 yeah. or a percentage of 20 offices. So, so what did he do? Did he sell his other practice when he went in with you? Yeah, so, well, it was, it was kind of interesting. Him and his partner had a third person join them and then okay. they each would have their full partnership there and they would work half a partnership in my office. We found out that that didn't really work out very well. So he it's sold amazing. out of his, his full partnership there and became a full partner at my office. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Exactly. So let me ask you this now, uh, is just trying to understand, cause I'm not familiar with the setup. So would that be, okay, listen, um, I want to set up in, uh, East Albuquerque, Kentucky, and I want to set up a, a comfort dental office. Um, do they, do you give them like a percent? Are you paying them almost like a franchise fee? Yes. Like if, like if you were setting up a Sonic drive, I mean, what, 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 how does it work? Great question. So there are a couple of things that make it more franchise as opposed to a true private practice. You do pay a royalty. That's 5%. You okay. do have a flat marketing fee. That's about 4,000 a month for some people that's high for some people that's low, but uh, we've been averaging, we averaged 96 or 92 new patients a month, our first year, and then over a hundred every year afterwards. And this year, I think we're averaging somewhere around the 150 to 180 a month. Um, so the marketing works. And then you have to use uh, you have to use their lab, but you can use other labs, but you have to give advance notice. You know, you have to say, hey, I have someone who needs something done today. I have to use the local lab. But then otherwise, they, they will make use their lab. Um, and we have approved vendors, which is almost every good approved vendor. I, I have never wanted for anything um, so all the supplies that I want, it, it will come from one approved vendor or another. So the, so are they looking at your books too, or no? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they're telling you, listen, you know, your, your pay, your, your salaries are, you know, 30%, they should be 25%. Do they get involved at that level with what you're doing? So they, it's, it's almost like a platform. They have a platform in which they will go and you say you want to buy the office or you want to start a new office. They will, from the ground up, build that office for you. And then they open those doors. They show you how to run the office. Um, and then they let you do everything. So like firing, hiring, that's all dependent upon us. How we want to practice dentistry, that's dependent upon us. But most of the things that they, they do is uh, the platform is the business model, the practice model. So one of the key distinctions between us and another office is well, one, we're open a lot more because we have two doctors. So we have 66 hours of clinical time per week. Every single Saturday we're open. Doesn't mean every single Saturday I'm working, but every single Saturday we're open. The other distinction is when you go in as a new patient, the first person you meet after your paperwork is actually the doctor. So you meet the doctor, the doctor gets an idea of where you're at, what you wanna do, um, and then goes to the back and, you know, puts, uh, we put the patient in the, in the operatory and we prescribe what, what radiographs need to be taken, whether it's a full mouth or if this patient's in a lot of pain, just a one single PA or, you know, whatever it needs to be. 
Um, but we also kind of like hand off to the assistant afterwards, as opposed to most places where you kind of feel like you're being rushed through to the panel room, then to the assistant, maybe they take bite wings, then the doctor comes in, or even maybe the hygienist comes, does a cleaning, then the doctor comes in. So all of that is secondary to the patient meeting the doctor first. So we get a clear idea of what the patient wants. So, but as part of the startup, so let's say we, same, same example, we're still going to Albuquerque, uh, Kentucky. Uh, so, okay, you're going to build the office. You're going to put this amount of equipment. Is that then a loan that I owe them? How, how, how does that get financed? Yeah, so in some places, it's different in every state. Um, some places, it is a loan through maybe what's called a sub-franchisor of the state. But I think they're trying to move away from that whole idea of sub-franchisors because they've had uh, past problems. Um, so some cases, it's that way. Some cases, it's directly through Comfort Dental. But in most cases, they have a couple of banks that work with them where if you sign a on the dotted line to own a Comfort Dental, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a dentist and you have a heartbeat, they'll give you the money. And that's because the Comfort Dental offices are extremely successful. Okay. All right. So so before, I don't want to go too far into the weeds with that because, but I just wanted to get a feel for it because that's a kind of a unique, you know, opportunity to, to uh, just start up right out of school. And, and what so I will say is, right. you know, because there's two doctors in the office, I was only working six hours a day and I worked every other Saturday, but that allowed me to have business hours that I was available every single day. And so with real estate being that I needed to go to a showing and it couldn't be at seven in the morning or 7 p.m., I could do it at 11 a.m. and do that. So this, this model actually helped me. I didn't realize it at the time, but it helped me create my real estate system because it allowed me the freedom to do so. Okay, let's get into it. So real estate, let's, 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 start, with, let's start with just the ABCs. What would you say are some of the, the very essential basics? Okay, so um, I'm, I'm mostly in residential real estate. The first mm -hmm. thing you got to decide is what kind of real estate do you want? There's commercial real estate, there's residential real estate, and there's multifamily residential real estate. You can own land uh, and just maybe hold on to the land. There's so many different kinds of real estate. The easiest one for most people is residential real estate because it doesn't get simpler for people to understand that you buy a house, you rent the house out, you get a check every month, and you just make sure that the check is more than your expenses. Okay. That so will be the, the most basic have, way to put it. Have you flirted with uh, commercial real estate at all? I, I love chasing returns. I will love chasing returns. So, uh, Residential real estate works for me because I actually tend to get the highest return in residential real estate. I don't want to go down too far unless you want me to, Dr. Sonny, but um, I, told you, I told you guys and explained how in that summit, how I'm getting 40 to 50% returns year on year over year, you know, and that is through residential real estate. I have not found those same returns in multifamily. I've not found those same returns in commercial However, there are different pros, right? Multifamily may be easier because you can buy a lot of units at one time. Commercial may be easier in that you don't necessarily have to deal with, oh, my toilet doesn't work or you know, hiring out that kind of property management. The tenant, the person who rents the building generally has to take care of that. 
So there's pros and cons of everything, but I like chasing return. And for me, because my goal was to retire in 10 years. So I need to create very strong cash flow. So even though I could have more equity or more money um, in a different area of real estate, the cash flow was what would set me free from my burden of having to produce dentistry every day. And so residential real estate was the reason, uh, residential real estate is the way I went because of that. So remember now listeners, right? Wants to retire in 10 years, graduated in 2017. So he's a quote unquote babe in the woods, but he is not a babe in the woods. So let's talk about getting to that return. Let's talk about just some of the simple understanding of um, what, what real estate returns to you. Cause I think you're right. The simple thing is, okay, I have this responsibility. This is my obligation to the bank. And then this is my incoming um, income coming in from the rent, but there's also appreciation. There's depreciation. There's, you know, there's, uh, you know, different ways that that month that that turns out to make you profit where you do get to 40 or 50%. So yep. why don't you, let's talk, let's talk about that. So the, the first way people understand uh, making money in real estate is, okay, I have this house and let's say it rents for a thousand bucks. Now my expenses, my, my expenses I have to pay every month or at least save for every month are principal and interest, which is the bank loan, if yep. you have one, um, the taxes, and that's not like personal taxes, that's property taxes yep. and insurance on the house. So PITI, right? so yep. yeah, pity. So PITI, that is the most basic, basic of expenses. Now, what I find a lot of uh, professionals doing is they'll evaluate a house and they will only look at PITI versus rent. They'll say rent is a thousand bucks, PITA is 800, I'm making $200. That is not the correct way to do it. And here's why, because you have more expenses than PITI. You will have vacancy at one point or another. You hope that you don't, but you save up just in case you do. Then you will have repairs that will come. You have smaller repairs like, oh, the, the plumbing, the toilet won't flush. You know, that's what most people always think about when they talk about investing. You have things like that. Then you have bigger repairs like, oh, I have to replace my entire HVAC unit, HVAC unit. You know, that may happen every seven to 10 years whereas the plumbing might happen two to three times a year. So you have the smaller expense, but more frequent repairs. And then you have the bigger expense, but way less frequent, more infrequent repairs. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, you have property management. For a lot of people, they want to say that, oh, I don't need property management because I'm going to manage, excuse me, I'm going to manage it myself. And that's fine if you want to, but you still have to save for property management because if you're making enough money in real estate, you're going to want to keep doing it. If you're going to want to keep doing it, and you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I own about 50 different doors, 50 different rental units of real estate, there is no way I could hold my dental job and be managing and be leasing and be marketing for 50 different rentals. So eventually you're going to get to a point where you either don't want to or you've scaled beyond your means to property manage yourself. And so when you buy a house, you have to have that amount in there when you're evaluating it to make sure that you're buying it at the correct amount. So what I say is that my rent um, minus the principal interest taxes and insurance, 
And then I save 5% for vacancy, 15% for repairs, both big and small, and 8% for property management. That equals 28%. So my, my rent minus the PITI minus the 28% of the rent that is remaining, that has to be a 12% return. And so what I mean by that is, let's say your down payment for a house was $10,000. After all these PITI expenses and the other expenses, you have to be making $1,200 a year. So $1,200 divided by $10,000, that's 12%. That's where that 12% cash on cash. So I got to be making 12% cash money on my return of whatever I put for the down payment. Then that is the first and most commonly understood way of making money in real estate. That's cash flow. Then you have something called mortgage paydown. You we talked about the PITI previously. The P part, the principal, you're paying down your bank note every month because you're actually increasing your net worth because you're decreasing your liability, you're decreasing your debt, you're increasing your net worth. So that has a return in itself. Many times that can be around 10% just on that. Um, so on my properties, I usually average about a 10% return on mortgage pay down in net worth gain. Then beyond that, there's depreciation. Depreciation is a way of, I don't really want to get too much into it because it gets very numbery, but uh, it's a way of saying that because you own this house and the house is not as valuable tomorrow as it is today because everything is a day older, I get to write off some amount of money um, to the IRS and say that I don't actually owe this money. It's a paper loss. So that's depreciation. Then appreciation is the most commonly understood, which is actually when you buy houses, the value of it goes up. And so over time, usually over time, it goes up. So a house that was bought for 100,000, five years later, it's worth 130, you've appreciated $30,000. So that, that is something that also goes into your return. But of course, you can't actually, you don't actually have that money until you either sell or you refinance your loan on the higher value and are able to pull out money. Um, so it's, it's a paper money that you have gained, but it is still a return because you can translate that paper money into actual money. Okay, so using your example, so you have $100,000 home and you have, uh, what did you say, $1,000 a month rent? What was the number? Yeah, so the general rule of thumb is a 1% rule. So the full value of the house, the full purchase of the house, you want 1% of that as your monthly rent. And in some places, this is almost impossible to hit, like California and Austin, places like that. And some places like Oklahoma City, this is relatively easy to hit. Although right now, with the way prices are going, it's becoming harder. But still, I would say it's relatively easy to hit that 1% in the Midwest. So just by using numbers, so a $300,000 home, you're looking at a $3,000 rent. Yep, exactly. And But one thing that happens as you get a higher and higher purchase price is it's not as important to get to that 1% rule. Uh, the reason for that is the expenses that are fixed are fixed despite what your rent is. And, and what I mean is if you have a water tank that needs to be replaced, 
that water tank is $600. That water tank being $600 will stay the same no matter if your rent is 1000 or right. rent is 3000 So on a $300,000 house, if you're getting less than 1%, at maybe you can get $2,400, you might still be able to hit the 12% cash on cash because you don't necessarily need to save 15% of rent for expenses. If you remember before, I was saving 5% for vacancy, 15 for expenses, repairs, right. and 8% for property management. Well, as your rent number goes up, the percentage of those rent numbers that you need to save goes down because some things are just that price, like a $600 water tank. Gotcha. So those are some of the things like, like, we, like you know, going back to those are some of your uh, marquee points. Talk about property management. Just talk about using or finding and what exactly that means by property management. Because I think as I'm sitting here listening, going, oh, yeah, water tank, I ain't fixing that. Oh, yeah, right. plumbing problem, I ain't touching that. So talk about what a property manager does. Well, I, I can definitely tell you about that because I had to fire my property manager this year and get a new one because my, my property manager was letting deferred maintenance happen on my properties. She was getting requests for fixing things and wasn't following up with them. Or she was, worse of all, she was saying, oh, here's what happened and then sending it to me. And I'm like, why am I paying you money if I have to figure out who's got to fix it? And you know, so I had to fire her because she wasn't good. My new property manager, however, is a rock star. I've had her for about uh, six months or so. When things happen, she handles everything. Now, with your property manager, you'll have a contract generally saying any expenses over $300 needs to get approved by the owner or expenses over 200 or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Some amount of money, arbitrary amount of money that you guys set needs to be approved. But anything under, yeah, she just has the ability to send her guys out, get it fixed, get the tenant happy and keep a long-term tenant, which reduces vacancy. Right. And then that 5% that I'm saving for vacancy can actually end up over a long period of time just being cash sitting around. And then I can use that. Um, so having a good property manager means that you are not actively in the day, you're not active in the day-to-day -day business of managing these rentals. You are ideally spending maybe a couple hours at most every month reviewing the statements, seeing that, oh, on one of my properties, a water tank had to be replaced. Oh, on one of my properties. They had a, a sewer problem or a plumbing problem. They had to snake the line for the toilet. But then at the end of the day, you're just like, okay, but I got fifteen dollars or $20,000 in rent. I'm good with that. I have maybe $400, $500 in expenses. I'm good. I can move on. You know, That's what a true property manager should be doing. Now, let me ask you this, just as a side lay, I was dying to ask you this question with 50, pro 50 doors or 50 properties. And then you have this, this, this number um do you keep track of it like do you in your do you set up a bank account for every single property absolutely not that would be an absolute nightmare yeah that would be terrible um and i don't have one llc per property either if you're going to scale this business there's no way you're going to do one llc per property now maybe in california where the properties are a million or two million dollars or a commercial building where the uh -huh. properties are that expensive you could have one LLC and one bank account. But for me, where my, my average property, I mean, when I bought it was between 50 and 80,000. 
And currently maybe it's between 100 and 120,000 just because everyone's houses are growing in value so crazily. Um, I, I had uh, personal properties like I, that I owned 100% myself and one, a set of properties that I owned 50% with a partner. And those two were their own bank accounts and that was it. Everything in that LLC went to that bank account and everything in the other LLC went to the other bank account. Okay, so, so how, do you, how do you keep track then? So of the, of the properties that you own 100%, let's say you have 10 of them, how do you keep track of that 28%? Is it just, is it just a, like a soft figure? In other words, it's just in the computer and it's all one pool of money? So you can just take 28% of rent um, out and, and either allocate it or put it in a savings account or something like that if you want to. Uh, to be frank, you know, this is going to be a, a do as I say, not as I do kind of deal because with this many properties, yeah. I know that with how much rent I always have coming in, if I have a $5,000 repair bill from all my properties, I just take it out of rent. I just... I just take home less rent. I'm never not profiting. So I just, I just take home less rent, you know? Um, so when you're, when you're scaling and when you're evaluating deals, it's important to do that. When you get to the point where you have enough properties, you're going to have so much rent coming in. You just pull from that rent. You just have a lower profit month and then you move on. Okay. So, but how do you, so I'm assuming that as you're building this up, you're using this to purchase more properties at some point, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You, and you can, so like money keeps accruing in my account and as it does, I can purchase more properties. I, I do have a pretty awesome uh, partner in real estate now where we have established a deal where even though I will eventually pay him back the capital and I owe him money every time we buy a property, he actually puts in a hundred percent of the property down payment. And then I owe him my half of the down payment over five years. So I'm paying out my half over time, even though I have the money. The reason I'm doing this is because I can scale and leverage much more quickly. And I know Dr. Sonny, you're probably not thrilled about that because you're anti-leverage 100%. <laughs> Whereas I, leverage for me is the greatest thing in real estate. It is the right. way to grow my, my ability to earn income through real estate. And so I love leverage. Now, keep in mind, I say I love leverage, but I'm not just buying any house because I have access to funds. They still have to meet my strict buying criteria. When I tell you I have offered on hundreds and hundreds of properties, I truly mean I have hundreds of offers out there that have been rejected because I offered too low, because my numbers are conservative that I need to make sure I'm making money and so if they're not accepted, it's okay. I just move on to the next one. Right. So, I mean, you had mentioned this and that's the reason why I ask about that forced discipline by, so if, cause you said some people can get into trouble if they start altering those numbers, mm -hmm. that 28%, which a lot of people would, would say, well, like you said, well, I'm, I'm, I got this much coming in. That's my rent. Here's my PITI. And, and, you know, we'll deal with the other stuff as it comes. And then what happens, right? Invariably, they're going to have a couple of, of repairs and they're going to be shocked. And then they're probably going to want to get out of this. And they're going to want to change course in terms of their investment strategy. Mm -hmm. So talk, talk about that. Talk to the person. Okay, listen, I'm, 
not me personally, but let's say, hey, I'm, I'm a stock guy. I put the money in stock. I watch it. I move it. I, I, I follow interest I, I, you know, between stocks, bonds, et cetera. How, how does this mindset differ from that? Well, I, I think that the results will speak for themselves. A common source of new properties for me is tired landlords. <laughs> I love tired landlords, but I, I hate the fact that they're in their position they're in. I, I truly feel bad for them, but I love it that I can solve their problem because a tired landlord probably has a trashed house or a house that needs a significant amount of repairs and they have fewer buyers. So I have less competition and I can get a better deal because it's trashed. It's a win-win for me, you know? It's a win-win also for the tired landlord because they're tired. They just want to get out. They don't want to deal with a tenant headache anymore. They decided that this business wasn't for them. And I think it comes to that. It's a business. People treat it as a hobby or a passion. It cannot be one of those. It, well, it could be a passion, but it's still got to be treated like a business. You still have to evaluate every deal. You still have to make sure every deal is profitable. And when people don't and they neglect to save the appropriate amounts, for expenses, before you know it, you have a tenant that caused $6,000 of damages and you're only getting $1,000 a month of rent and you don't have enough money to fix it and to get the next tenant in. And so having that discipline and analyzing the deals correctly on the front end and making sure, especially when you're starting that you are saving the 28%. You know, when you, when you scale, not so necessary because you can pull from rent, but in the beginning, when you're starting it is so important that you, you are saving that money because you're going to have times when you're going to dip into it and you're going to be glad that you did. Um, so I, yeah, the difference is I'm running it like a business and other people aren't. And when they aren't, they sell it to people like me who are running it like a business. Okay, so you talked about it and you talked about very strict buying principles. And I, I know we touched on it. I, let, let's firm that up, right? So let's, let's just use a concrete example. Let's say, now, would you buy a two family or one family only? I, I buy anything that cash flows. Okay, so there's a two family and it's 2,400. It's, let's say it's $250,000. Okay. Let's, let's say $250,000. And each side, each side rents for about 13, four, let's say $1,400 each a month. It's a, it's Perfect. a, it's a it's duplex. Uh, talk, talk to me now. What would you say? I'm the realtor. Hey, listen, Rashawn, I got this place, you know, it's 25, 250 grand rents are this, you know, the one place hasn't been rented for a couple months, but that's, that's, what's the standards been. Talk about what, 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 what are your criteria now? What do you need to know? So First immediate uh, reaction is we're beating the 1% rule, right? We have 250,000 and we're at 2,800 in rent. So this is a deal worth pursuing to evaluate. Now it's a duplex. So there's certain things that you may have to think about more so than a single family house. Is the owner paying trash? Is the owner paying water? Is the owner paying electric? What utilities are being covered? Because a lot of duplexes are metered separately but a lot of them are also not metered separately. So if you have electric not metered separately, you have to account for is the rent inclusive of those utilities or is it not? Because if it, if it is inclusive of those utilities, go ahead and just take that out of rent and think, let's say, let's say- 
right. the 2,800 bucks does include the electric is not submeter. So that means each side has one, it just has one electric panel for both sides. So, and let's say your average uh, electric bill runs 300 bucks a month. So in my head, the rent is not 2,800 anymore, it's 2,500 anymore, right? So I got to evaluate on that. And of course, water is the same way and trash is the same way. So with a, with a duplex, you have to think about those kind of expenses. Then is there an HOA fee? Is there, you know, what, what are my insurance prices going to run? In my in an area like Oklahoma City has a suburb, well, not suburb, it's a different city in the south called Moore. It's about 30 minutes away. Well, Moore is part of Tornado Alley. So what is insurance insurance is going to be higher than somewhere in Oklahoma City proper because they get lots of hail and things like that. So I got to keep in mind is my insurance costs going to be higher, things like that. So first thing I'm doing is, is it passing the 1% rule? Yes, it is. The next thing I'm doing is I'm running it through the bigger pockets calculator. I love bigger pockets, the online forum. I pay 400 bucks, around 400 bucks a year to be on their like premium membership, which allows me to use their calculators. That's a, that's a website, www.biggerpockets.com. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. And it's just such a wonderful website because a lot of times people are like, Ooh, these numbers look good, but they don't actually know what my return is. Right. So this is a way to standardize all your offers to standardize all your properties and make sure that you are actually getting the minimum return that you want. So you go in, you put in your rent, you put in your expenses, like, is there going to be PMI, you know, uh, is this a house that you're buying on a conventional loan? And because you're buying it on a conventional loan, there's PMI costs, right? You're not putting the full 20% down, you may be putting 5% down or whatever the case may be. Um, and so is there PMI? Is there HOA fees? Is there, is the insurance going to be accurate for the area or is it going to be elevated or is it going to be lower? Uh, is there so, utility fees? So All your, those things. your PMI, you add to your PITI then, right? Correct. Yeah, you just put that on, you put that on that side of the equation, right? So let's, let's stay with the numbers, right? So let's say after you've examined the utilities, you've taken $2,800 and now you've got it down to $2,200. Okay. Yep. So now, now, now you're checking on, like you said, now you're going to check on what that insurance number is of the PITI right? You know mm -hmm. the taxes and mm -hmm. you got the other stuff. Okay. So continue then and, and, and go ahead. Yeah. So this is going to be hard to do a little bit harder to do in audio because truthfully, I just use the calculator, right? So I let it do all the calculations, but we're at 2,200. Where am I going to be at after PITI? I, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, and then where am I going to be at after, let's say, the 28% of expenses? And do I have to take the 28% on the original top number rent or the one after utilities? Uh, I, would, I would say do it always conservative. So do it on the, the original 2,800. So you're taking 28% from 2,800. Or maybe you're taking a little bit less than 28% because at a $2,800 rent, you probably don't need as uh, maybe you need 12% in repairs as opposed to 15, you know, okay, let's, so you might let's, take, let's throw some, let's throw some numbers out. So let's say you put 20% down, so you don't have PMI. Okay. So and, you have, you have a $50,000 down payment, right? And you, you borrow 200 and let's say, you know, Amber, let's say that all in you're at $1,800. 
So okay. your delta, your delta now is four hundred dollars. Four hundred. Okay, perfect. So we have four hundred dollars of profit, right? So four hundred dollars times twelve is forty-eight hundred. Forty-eight hundred divided by fifty thousand. Our down payment is going to be under ten percent because five thousand over fifty thousand is ten percent. So I'm getting a lower than ten percent cash on cash return with with what you're saying. Yes. Uh, that for me would be a no go. But how do you make it a go, right? Because every deal, every property has a price at which it makes sense. And here's the catchy part. Sometimes a deal is so bad that the price that only makes sense is a negative number. So it only would make sense if you were being paid by the buyer or being paid by the seller to buy it, right? So obviously those are terrible, terrible deals. You don't do that. But in this case, $400 a month means $4,800 of rent of cash flow, which means under a 10% cash on cash return for me would be a no go. Uh, now let's say, let's say you offered 230,000 instead of 250, and let's say the delta was $600. If you have $600 times 12, that's 7,200, and because you're offering 200, uh, would I say 230? So now you're offering 40. Your down payment is 46,000. Over the and you're doing 7,600 over the 46,000. I don't know the math off the top of my head, but that's probably over 12%. So at that number, everything makes sense. So you figure out and you keep playing with the numbers. So you find out where you can offer because every property has a price at which it makes sense. You just have to find an offer on that. So, so this number, the 28%, you haven't even calculated yet. You're just strictly looking at, and that's a beautiful thing right there. And I think people can really replicate that, at least in terms of their mind. It, 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 with you got to know all expenses, every single one down to the penny, and what the rents are, assuming they're legitimate rents. And you had some tips on finding out what rents are real. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a couple different ways that I use. Um, normally, what I do now is I just ask my property manager because she has a really good thumb on the market. She manages over 400 different, different units. So she knows better than, than pretty much anyone. But uh, if you're a newer person and you're not using a property management company, here's a couple tools. There's a website called Rentometer or Rentometer, R-E-N-T-O-Meter.com. You can just put in your address, put in the beds and baths. You can put in the amount of rent that you're expecting, and it'll actually tell you by percentile where you are average um, compared to the rest of the area. So it may say you're in the 25th percentile, and that means that your rent is actually lower than what you could get in the area. So you want to be in that, uh, depending on your finishes, right? So if you have really nice finishes, you can safely assume you're going to be in the 75th and higher percentile. If you have standard rental finishes, assume that maybe you're in that 30 to 60 percentile, right? If you have terrible finishes and maybe don't have the best property, I would suggest don't even rent, don't get in this business because if you're going to be a slumlord, you're, you're not, I mean, that's just not the way to do it. You got to, these are actual people and, you know, actual lives. You're effective. I mean, if you're a dentist and you're a slumlord, shame on you because you're taking care of patients in your practice. Yeah. <laughs> and you know so it's oxymoron yeah exactly so if, if you're if your rents are if you're aiming for that area then then you're not doing it right you got to fix up that property 
So let, let's talk about, because you said, okay, you got a, you got a tired landlord. He wants out. So I'm thinking, all right, so this $250,000 property example we just used. Uh, so they've got someone who's caused some, you know, pretty major damage on the one side and they haven't rented yeah. it for a while. So, so now maybe you're going to get it for 200. Even better, probably. So let's say this, this tenant caused 20 grand of damage. This, yes. this house is worth 250. The, you and the, the seller know that there's 20 grand of damage and the seller wants out. They want to get out with cash. They want, they know you're serious. They know you're a dentist. I always, when I buy stuff, I tell them I'm a dentist. Why? Because they know I'm going to close the house. They know I'm not just a tire kicker. So I use that, oh, I'm a dentist. Oh, I'm a doctor. I'm a respected, uh, in a respected profession in, uh, in the city. And I'm local also. I always use that. So I'll tell them, I'll give you 180. We know it needs work. And uh, you get out with no, no problems. I'm 100% going to close this house. I'm going to buy it. Even if it needs 30 grand of work as opposed to 20, I'm still going to buy this house, right? But then you put in 20 grand. So you're in it 200 and it appraises for 250. You've essentially acquired 20% of, of equity. Yeah, yeah, because uh, if you, you could have bought the same house with no work needed for 250, put the 50 grand down, 50 grand down payment and have that 200 grand loan, or you could have done it this other way and had the same 50 grand of equity without spending a dime. So let's, so take that example. So you buy, you get this place for 180 and you're going to put in 20 grand. We're, we're, you use that 20 grand, you borrow that 20 grand. How does that come out for you? What's, what's the most effective way to get that money to rehab it? Sure. So Oklahoma City is a absolutely wonderful market uh, between investors, between where we're, most of the investors are friendly and, and the banks as well. Like the market is good for investing. The banks are really friendly towards investors. I find that in places like Florida, you don't necessarily have options like this. But in my area, the bank will tell me, I will go and tell the bank, hey, I'm going to buy this property. I'm going to do these repairs to it. And they're actually going to loan me on the after repair value. So they're actually going to loan me on the $250,000. And so what that ends up happening is what that ends up meaning that happens is they give me the $200,000 at closing. So they buy the property and give me a check to rehab the property. So as much as I can, I will use that bank money to do everything. The less money coming out of my pocket, the better. As long as I'm not buying a property and I get a whole bunch of bank money, and then because I borrowed so much money, I have a negative cash flow. So again, it always comes back to your buying criteria. You've got to be making money. You've got to hit that 12% return, in my opinion. Um, and mm -hmm. if you're not, even though you have access to the capital through the bank and that deal is, there's enough equity in that deal. If it's negative cash flow, I don't want a property that I have to put money into every month. Okay. So in this scenario, you're, you're not borrowing a hundred, you're, you're trying to mortgage $250,000 mortgage. Well, I'm trying to borrow on a $250,000 asset, which means they'll lend me 200,000 because they will lend me 80% of the value. Right. So the extra 20, you're using that, that's your finance. That's your finance. So in other words, you're paying your $20,000 
rehab costs over the life of your mortgage. So 20. Exactly. So it, one, it's not coming out of my own pocket and two, it's, it's being paid over 20 years, which some people will say, oh, you're paying interest on that for 20 years. I understand that argument, but at the end of the day, it's not me paying the interest. It's a tenant. So I, I don't mind it, it's because at that's the end the, of the day, go ahead. That's the principle of OPM, other people's yep. money. Yeah. You know, and you're putting other people's money to work for you and ultimately to increase your appreciation asset and to increase your cash flow, which is, yeah. this is it. Talk, let's, I mean, we could talk about this. I could go on forever. I have a million questions personally, because I, I kind of have a little bit of an interest in this. Uh, sure. uh, I will ask one more question specific to this. Talk about LLCs. You set up an LLC and in, in, I know in New York state, I mean, that's what our, my dental offices are professional LLCs. Mm-hmm. And some of our real estate that's owned at the prop that the dental offices rent are in LLCs. Mm-hmm. What is the advantage to an investor to having an LLC? Uh, so it's mostly from a liability standpoint, having things in LLCs mean that there is one extra barrier to reach you, right? So if someone sues, uh, someone gets hurt in a property and they sue the owner. The owner is not technically me. It's my LLC and I own the LLC. And so everything that it's they're suing is actually the LLC. So it provides one extra degree of separation between my personal assets, mm-hmm. which if they can get to me, that means they can get to my dental office. They can get to my personal home. They can get to too many things that they shouldn't be able to get to. So by putting in an LLC, you almost create this bubble around it in that they can uh, they can only attack what's in that LLC. And so that that is a, a great question. The, the negatives, however, is that if you get loaned a property, if you get a mortgage on a property in an LLC, your interest rate is higher. And as opposed to the most conventional 30-year fixed rate, you now have a 20-year rate most times. Um, and you usually only have a five or 10-year fixed rate. So you are a lot more, uh, you have a lot more money coming out in the PI part of the pity as opposed to a third year note. Mm -hmm. And um, you also have a lot more in the I part because you have the interest is a higher rate. Now, let me ask you this because I I had this conversation actually recently with an accountant uh, and an advisor. As you continue to accrue properties, you're accruing a lot of assets. So that means one person slips at property 30 and now they go after the, the, the LLC, which now is property owner of 60 different properties. Do you have a point where you're going to set up a second one? So originally I did, I actually have two personal LLCs that own properties because I was told that you either do 10 properties or $1 million in assets per, per LLC. I now do not agree with that because I have friends that I'm fortunate in this community that are very open with me and they have 150 or 200 properties in the LLC. And and what they're telling me is, man, these things are going to happen. You just need the insurance. It's like, almost like, are you, are you opening up a different dental practice just for wisdom teeth? Because you're going to get a lawsuit on on uh, paresthesia. You don't open up a whole nother dental practice just to do wisdom teeth. And in your main dental practice, you do your fillings. 
it doesn't work like that, right? So you're just gonna you're just gonna have great insurance to cover everything, and you go ahead and put it in one LLC. Uh, not financial advice, not legal advice. Talk to your CPA. I have to say all these things, right? Talk to your CPA. Talk to your attorney. Yeah. But what I do is I just now acquire in one LLC if it's my partnership, and one LLC if I'm buying it personally. Okay. If you want more information, anybody listening, uh, Dr. Kalra, his information will be on the show notes, his email, uh, where his office is located, Elk Canyon Court, Oklahoma City. And there's a phone number on there if you choose to reach out. Um, he's very, as you can tell, very willing to share and very open. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up because, like I said, I could go on for days and days and we probably should have you back for a follow-up on some more specific ends but yeah, I think we, we've is, touched a lot of basic things so if you wanted to you know talk more advanced i'd be happy to yeah i think we should i think and, and a lot of people even if you just own your own dental building you know and you know how this this could be one way to get your foot in the door and you know and now you're a pretty good tenant because you're your own tenant you know you just start to to think in those terms right so I got to ask you one final question, which I ask everybody first time they're on, has nothing to do with dentistry. If you could go to one place in time, go back to any place, any time, where would you go and why? Does it have to be back? Yeah, it's got to be back. We can't, oh, it's can't be, be back. Can't be George Jetson. I'm not going to. Uh, I was going to say, I want to go to the future. I want to see. I, I love how cool humanity is growing. And, and you know, despite everything, it, I just can't imagine what the future is going to be like. If I had to go back, ooh, that is a great question. I, I probably would like to go back and, and see what my, where my grandparents, my, uh, how they lived. Um, so they were, you know, 1920s. Uh, ish time in uh, in India and uh, you know me being in America is a direct result of what my grandparents on both sides did and so I, I would love to see how they lived and the choices they made that led to all of this that's cool man that's a really that's a nice personal touch appreciate it. I appreciate you very much absolutely thank you for having me on here I'm honored oh man, the pleasure's all mine thank you Okay, everybody, that wraps it up. And if you want to talk to or reach out to Dr. Kalra, all that information will be on there. And thank you for listening to Fee for Service Podcast. Have a great day, Rashawn. Peace. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Fee for Service Dentist Podcast. If you would like to share your Fee for Service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our Fee for Service Dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.